0: This is The Global Gambit. In The Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy and current affairs. Each episode, your host, Piotr Kurzin, brings you interviews and panels with top-tier academics, journalists and policymakers, seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us and question and critically analyse these matters. This is The Global Gambit. Welcome, your host Pyotr Kozin speaking, and today I'm very excited to be having a discussion about the broader implications of the Ukrainian war, Russia's invasion into Ukraine, on the areas of Chinese-Russian relations and a lot of other areas to do with the global financial system and the implications of the war on it. In the past recent days, we've seen a continued reluctance by the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, to take a clear position and maintain their position of benevolent neutrality. The West continues to be frustrated with the Chinese position and their reluctance to support the West or at least denounce the war events and even provide a supposed diplomatic support to the Russians. But does this extend further than just diplomacy? Does this extend towards economic support? What impact do the sanctions have on the Russian economy and can China offset those? What does this have historically on the relations of the two? And can they create some alternative type of financial system? What implications does it have for Japan and Russians' relations over the Kuril Islands and the East China Sea? All those questions and more coming up in this episode. Joining me today is my fellow co-host Tao Tan, someone who has great expertise in this area. Very glad to have you, Tao. I'd love to switch over to you to uh, introduce yourself and also the guest speaker we'll be listening to for this episode.
1: Thank you very much, Piotr. I'll skip the introduction of myself, if that's okay, with you, as I am not the star of this show. But I am delighted to introduce Dr. Zoe Zongyuan Liu, my colleague from the Council on Foreign Relations. She is currently a Fellow for International Political Economy within the David Rockefeller Studies Program at the Council. Uh, Specifically, she's worked in East Asian and Middle Eastern economies uh, with expertise on global financial markets, sovereign wealth funds, supply chains of critical materials, and energy and climate change policy. Interestingly enough, just a few weeks ago, in fact, uh, on the eve of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, she published a paper titled Can BRICS De-Dollarize the Global Financial System? So I think uh, if there's anything to be said about Dr. Uh, Zoe Liu is that she has, a, she has an uncanny ability to be in the right place at the right time. She has uh, prior to joining the Council on Foreign Relations, she had prior academic appointments at Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies, where I believe she was one of Pyotr's instructors at one point in time at Tufts University's Fletcher School of Diplomacy, at Texas A&M's Bush School of Government, at NYU's Stern School of Business, at Columbia University, my own alma mater, and also at the Chinese Ministry of Commerce. Uh, Dr. Lu holds a PhD from Hopkins, a master's from George Washington University, and a BA from Shandong Normal University. It's okay with you. I'll kick off with the first question. So, so Zoe, at the beginning of this war, there were all sorts of predictions that Russia and China would form some sort of economic bloc where China would act as Russia's conduit to the outside world, in effect, help insulate Russia from sanctions. Uh, yet that doesn't seem to have happened yet. You know, the Chinese banks, far as we can tell, seem to be going out of their way to comply with U.S. sanctions, uh, far from, being, from facilitating Russian commerce with the outside world. So what's your assessment of why these predictions haven't materialized yet? And more importantly, how might they continue to evolve?
2: Yeah, Tao, that's a great question. And I think, you know, in the running up of all these Western sanctions against Russia, first of all, let me just step back a little bit to reframe how I see China's economic relationship with Russia. In many ways, I'd like to think about Russia and China relations, either political, economic, and or geostrategic in the broader context of China's relationship with the rest of the world. And in many ways, since China joined uh, WTO in December 2001, China has been trying to, on the one hand, integrate to the U.S.-led global fin- uh, economic and financial system, and then on the other hand, try to balance its, its position in the system in the sense that it does not want to be help helplessly pulled into the system, but rather try to make clear its identity as a developing country trying to achieve to a great nation uh, status. So in this particular context, China has been working its relationship with the West and uh, reform domestically. And on the other hand, trying to engage with the developing countries. And since the global financial crisis as a critical juncture in many ways, China's relationship with the rest versus China's relationship with broadly speaking global South has shifted a little bit in the sense that there is this new wave of a narrative, you know the decline of American hegemon, the resilience of the Chinese economy, so on and so forth. Hence, in many ways, Beijing had its own recalculation. On the one hand, to what extent the, the developed countries can, or in particular, America, can be counted on, or to, in many ways, Beijing probably had to look out for it itself. And then, on the other hand, it was also in this time the rise of China, Russia, India, Brazil, and South Africa, you know, as a block. The start to create this informal uh, partnership or informal alliance in many ways. In this particular context, China and Russia has been developing closer economic relationship, both bilaterally and multilaterally. And in this particular context, Russia and China have been talking about the use of uh, local currency in international trade and at the same time trying to develop an alternative system in the sense that they can uh, suffer less of a lot of the risks. In, in the beginning, from China's perspective, it's more of, uh, you know, foreign exchange risk and so on and so forth. But after 2014, after Russia's annexation of uh, Crimea, when, um, UK Prime Minister, uh, tried to lobby the European Union to say, hey, this is the time for us to kick Russia off the SWIFT. That was, that had some, you know, repercussions domestically in Russia. Putin's regime started to do something, uh, about our own economy. That was the time when Russia started to build its own domestic financial messaging system, which now everybody knows about it, the so-called SBFS, and uh, then combined with the MiaCard system. So from that perspective, Russia putting him into this war, not unprepared. And did China do something similar? Yes, China did. But actually China started building its own domestic financial messaging system plus a settlement system before, long before that, and the goal was not to anti-sanction or, you know, isolate China from the global financial system. And no, it's not that. It's actually trying to facilitate the inter, I mean, internationalization. And when I was doing some research on, on this issue, there was, the, I, I remember talking to some people working both at the SWIFT in China, some people in uh, in, in PBOC in charge of the development of the CIPS system, right? So I asked people, like, why you wanted to a Chinese version of the SWIFT? So the, the, the answer was, actually very genuine and very in many, ways, in many ways humble. People are telling me when we were a lot of these smaller banks trying to connect with the SWIFT system, we we simply didn't have a good connection. So our users constantly had a bad customer experience. So we wanted to improve customers' experience of using renminbi in international transactions. So that's how that whole thing started. Now fast forward, right when China's relationship with the United States deteriorated since 2018, Within China, there is a new round of reassessment of the risk of China's economic and financial relationship with the United States and how likely China might be uh, suffering from U.S. sanctions and in particular the risk of being kicked out of uh, U.S.-led global financial system. Now in this particular context, people realize, well, it looks like we are, we we have been building some sort of financial infrastructure that is based upon RMB and maybe that could be some sort of, you know, vehicle for us to use it. But from that perspective, people haven't really seriously thinking about it, using it to anti-sanction. In other words, the idea of developing China's own messaging system is not to anti-sanction. But once the system or the infrastructure is there, it becomes you know, a readily available vehicle when things not go well. And then putting it into the this, to, to come back, Tao, to your question, why China has not been facilitating Russia's transactions. The honest answer: Well, the messaging system themselves so far doesn't have the capacity. Then, secondly, if you just look at the Chinese banks' perspective, the major state-owned four four major state-owned commercial banks, they are very much integrated to the global financial system, and they have a pretty good track record to comply with sanctions, not just this time but before as well. And the ultimate purpose is to not being sanctioned by the United States. And, you know, this is the issue for Chinese banks, for other banks as well. Banks and other financial institutions comply with U.S. sanctions, not necessarily because, you know, the government or the Chinese Communist Party told them so, but really because the banks themselves, they need to survive and they do not want to go back, go, go under and then trigger out a global, a, a Chinese domestic banking crisis.
1: Well, thank you, Zoe, for that tour de force. That was a terrific overview of the sort of competing interests that, that you know, different stakeholders within China have to balance. You you nearly stole my thunder with my next question. So before I head on to that, I just want to touch on that a little bit. A lot of people have this idea of, you know, Chinese institutions and Chinese banks as the sort of you know unitary actor where there's top down directives coming from the central government and the banks just comply and what we've seen instead is that banks seem to be making their own decisions and their own assessments you know not necessarily in a tightly coordinated way is that a better way to understand how the chinese financial system works versus say centralized top down directives which you know a lot of people thinks how it works
2: uh Thank you very much, Tao, for this great question. And again, I think, you know, this is something that when I was in, when when I was teaching my Chinese foreign policy or Chinese political economy cl- classes, this is one thing that I always emphasize to my, uh, to, to my class and my colleagues. Never think about the China as a unitary actor because it is not. You have central local competitions or power bargaining. And then you also have all these different bureaucratic competitions. In many ways, China is uh, internally there are competing interests as much as, you know, how uh here in the United States, there are varieties of interest groups competing and bargaining against each other. It would be overly simplifying to say uh, there is a, a, a great framework to understand how China and Chinese commercial actors or the, the relationship between commercial actors and the Communist Party. If, if somebody want to give me a framework to like a one size fit all, I would be, well, you, you, you got to be kidding me, right? <laughs> but I try to simplify things uh, using a framework that try to limit the number of variables, if that makes sense. So the variables that I'm looking at is one, priorities. I look at what is the central government and the CCP's priority. And uh, what is the commercial actor? Whether it's a bank, whether it's sovereign funds, whether it is you know some state-owned enterprises to see whether their priorities are aligned. And then I also look at whether their interests are aligned. You know, you have corporate interests. You also probably, from a corporate perspective or bank's perspective, you have corporate interests. You have the senior managers' perspective uh, interests. And then on the other hand. Exactly as you said, there might also be the top-down interest coming from the government, from the, from the party. These interests and these priorities are not always aligned. So whenever we think about a Chinese, a particular Chinese company, a particular Chinese bank, whether it's energy conglomerate, whether it is state-owned enterprises or a bank or, you know, a critical mineral companies mining a cobalt mine in Democratic Republic of Congo, whenever the th- priorities and the interests are perfectly aligned. Those actors would be the perfect actor to exercise the Chinese state, uh, economic statecraft in many ways. But the moment when either the priorities or the interests are not necessarily aligned, they are not necessarily the best. Actor uh, for uh, the exercise of Chinese economic statecraft, and you see this in Chinese uh, commercial, uh, this Chinese energy companies all over the place. You know, people tend to think Chinese, you know, CNPC or CNLC, They tend to buy overseas oil and gas and ship them overseas, uh, ship them from overseas market back in China. All these SOE leaders. Their performance needs to be evaluated based upon how much money they made for the company and so on and so forth, not just how how good a party member they are. Their KPI were not necessarily... At the satisfying level, probably they 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 are they they are worried if they are they they can continue their job or what their next job would be. So you see all all these energy companies they might not bring oil and gas back to Chinese Chinese domestic market but sell them overseas. And this is a good analogy for the current case when you uh, we observe you know Bank of China and the other major banks even before United States said we are going to sanction Russian oil and gas, and the United States is not telling everybody, hey, you know, nobody should buy Russian oil and gas. It's not like that. It's just that saying, even before U.S. sanctioned Russian oil and gas, Bank of China and other major Chinese uh, state-owned commercial banks, they already stopped financing or issuing credit license for uh, Russian commodity purchase. That,
1: Zoe, thank you for that. That's a fascinating perspective, and I appreciate you being as explicit as you just were. I think there's a... There's a strong tendency among those of us who grew up in the West to assume, you know, unitary actor or unity of intention when you're talking about Chinese state interests. Um, you touched on a very interesting uh, phrase, which is economic statecraft, which is something that that is a once obscure topic. I, I bring back to it in that this is the first war where. Economic statecraft has been leveraged to this extent. And you touched on this in your first question, but I want to drive to the end of it, which is, you know, once obscure topics like SWIFT and CIPS and SPFS payments networks have taken center stage, I can also tell you that there are people that I've uh, been close to who have suddenly become very interested in Nostro and Vostro accounts. But the reality is that the network effects of the Western financial system is very strong with, you know, as you mentioned, Chinese and Russian payment systems handling a fraction of the flow of SWIFT. So if their goal is not to displace the Western financial system, what is Putin and Xi's endgame here?
2: Again, Tao, I have to say, you know, you ask all the great questions. <laughs> next time when I, when I wanted to write my, my, my next book, I'll, I'll ask you, you know, what, I, what are you thinking these days? <laughs> Uh so in, in terms of uh, you know how, what what exactly you know basically why company why uh Putin and Xi, Xi or you know Russia and China spend all their all a lot of money and resources to develop alternative systems. From my assessment I, I tend to think about this as I buy insurance or people buy insurance. In many ways we buy insurance not because we want to use them. Right? And in many ways, it is a hedging strategy from Russia and China's perspective. Putin, he himself once said the reason why Russia is cutting down its dollar reserves and preparing all these, uh, you know, alternative mechanisms is because he had no options. He was forced to do that. I tend to believe him that that is a genuine assessment. In many ways, you know, if everybody in international transactions using dollar as the invoicing currency, as you know, investment uh, investment currency or you know, asset uh, asset uh, benchmark, it is probably going to be very difficult if you do not have access to dollar liquidity. And another good example would be global financial crisis when there was when there when when, when there is the, you know liquidity crunch, people go people. Look at the Fed and say, "Hey, how are you going to save us?" And uh, you know, things happen again during during the COVID pandemic. So, in many ways, I think this is the same for Russia and that the, the same for China. The, the the situation with China probably has shifted a little bit. Uh, goes back to what I discussed earlier. On the one hand, it was a genuine move to facilitate or improve the user experience of, you know, the renminbi overseas transaction and to try to facilitate the the, the internationalization of renminbi. But now China really had this substantial threat feeling in particular after 2018. And there are several Chinese relatively influential thought leaders in, inside the Chinese uh, fi- financial circle, sh- making this argument that China needed to be prepared for a forced decoupling from the U.S. system and the U.S., uh, the dollar-denominated global asset system. So the idea some of these people is not to displace the dollar. And in many ways, if you think about it, when we think about who, what is the risk-free asset benchmark? It is the U.S. Treasury, isn't it? And the U.S. Treasury is the largest, most liquid asset, and the 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 most the, has the, the 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 most in-depth market in many ways. And guess who is the lar- who has all who has been the largest U.S. Treasury buyers? It is the Chinese the PBOC, right? So China in many ways does not want to have a dollar denominated asset market destabilized because that is not going to be beneficial for China's perspective as well. So in many ways, I go back to your question. From their perspective, it's really not about to dethrone or destabilize the global financial system or the, in particular, the dollar system. Really, on the one hand, you know, if you look at it after global financial system to a global financial crisis 2009, they wanted to have a change to reshape the representative, the representativeness inside of the existing system. So they established, you know, the, they ask for the reform of SDR, the uh, reform of IMF and World Bank and so on and so forth. They also established their own system The ID, or, such as the NDB or AIIB. The idea was to, on the one hand, inf- reform from within the system. And then on the other hand, try to pressure from outside and say, hey, if you do not want to force, make a change from the inside, I'm going to go it alone and uh, try to force changes from the outside. After 2014, 2018, things started to change a little bit even, even uh, more.
1: So Zoe, um, you know what you just said brought to mind a, com- a comment made once by Larry Summers, uh-huh. which is a Tina. There is no alternative, and I and I say this because I was actually working at a bank in 2011 or 2012 when the um, when Treasuries were downgraded by S and P. You know, normally when a when an asset becomes downgraded, then demands for it you know fall and its yields rise. And yet, crazily enough, when the Treasury was downgraded, the yields actually fell. Because, and and there was more of a flight to safety into treasuries because it was the risk-free asset. And that was something that was very unusual to see. So, look, I, I have to touch on this topic, and I think you you hinted at it already. But, you know, you wrote this very provocative paper uh, almost exactly eight weeks ago uh, on the day Russia invaded Ukraine, which titled uh, whether or not the BRICS could de-dollarize, would want to de-dollarize, particularly in the long-term role of the U.S. dollar. It seems like a very prescient article. I will have to admit, Zoe, uh, I did not read all 94 pages of dense economic analysis. So I would ask, can you summarize your conclusions for this audience And share with us any insights on how this has played out in real time so far.
2: Uh, Thank you very much, Tao, for uh, having given me an opportunity to talk about some uh, obscure research that I have done before. And the research, the research for, I finished this research last summer. And when in in those days people were not necessarily interested in a lot of these things, but it just tend, it just happened that you know now people started to get interested in this whole idea of de-dollarization and so on and so forth. In that particular research, I asked the question: Can BRICS to de- de-dollarize global financial system? And my my own answer is no, at least not uh, anytime soon. Um, but the infrastructure is already there from the perspective of um, both inside the existing system, try to re- reform from within, and then also go it along, establish alternative systems. And the idea of the so-called alternative is, is relative to the dollar system. And this idea of the alternative is very rudimentary. And it's such as, you know, uh, things that we, we, we already know, uh, the be the use of renminbi or, or alternative currencies in international settlement or, uh, you know, the, the alternative payment infrastructure. And the, you know, the bricks even wanted to create their own, uh, bricks cryptocurrency or and the, the so-called brick pay systems. It's kind of very, uh, they are trying to leverage a lot of this advanced and nuanced technology to try to jumpstart another system. But you know, the, the whole idea the, the broader, the, the drive-home, take-home conclusion is that first, no, they cannot de-dollarize, but the infrastructure is there. And then secondly, I am in the camp of uh, scholars who believed that no hegemonic currency or no dominant currency can be taken for granted forever. In, and. F- in today's conversation for the, the implication for the dollar is that probably the U.S. dollar's dominant currency status cannot be taken for granted forever. My, my own assessment is that the end or the dethroning of the dollar is not going to come because of a, a grand boom, but Probably it is going to be diminished or chipped away one after uh, one day after another, and the reasons of or the factors that might chip away of a dollars' dominant currency status might come from, on the one hand, emergence of all the other kind of the competing currencies. You know, for example, in the European Union, the euro, or British sterling, and the RMB. All these other currencies they have their own aspiration and then and, and uh former bank of governor a uh, bank of england governor mark carney he once said during a jackson poll jackson hall conference he called out well you know having the dollar as dominant currency is dangerous and he wanted people to de-dollarize. <laughs> so so that's one way and then the other so it comes from others external forces then the other comes from these emerging technologies and and it's a death by a thousand millions of thousands of uh, of of scratches in many ways, if that makes sense. Oh.
1: It, it makes perfect sense, Zoe. And, and I, and I, this brings to mind a, uh, you know, monetary economics lecture I remember hearing when I was an undergraduate, where my professor at the time pointed out that into the Middle Ages, there were parts of Europe that were still using Roman coins, despite the fact that the Roman Empire had collapsed hundreds of years earlier, because, um, you know, again, the problem of tinna, And you've also hit the nail on the head of, why in the short term the answer is no it's because the brics currencies the rupee the you know the the, the brazilian Ri, the uh, the ruble the renminbi um I don't know if i missed it, south african rand there isn't sufficient liquidity for it to be able to you know take the place of dollar payment flow but uh, i will now turn things over to my esteemed co-host uh, piotr who um starts who will touch on some of the uh, hints you have raised in your very fascinating answer piotr over to you
0: Thank you, Tal. Yes, very, very interesting um, discussion on the de-dollarization. Something I remember quite well from my um, brief but in-depth focus on it at at Johns Hopkins SAIS. So just building on the de-dollarization point, Zoe, um, something that I'm really, really interested in also is just broadly fiat currency. Uh, We've heard rumblings about US dollar sanctions against central banks that have led to a slippery slope of the politicalization, so to speak. In particular, some people have been saying uh, how this is a a seminal moment for cryptocurrencies, finally, perhaps, to displace fiat money. I think El Salvador is really the only country in the world that's uh, added it as a a viable source of um, medium of exchange, so to speak. Do you have a view on the viability of that? What is the practicality of having a reserve currency without a sovereign entity standing behind it? And just more broadly also, to tag on to the end of that is that Russia was and remains, I think, still the third largest crypto mining the country. And in the events in Kazakhstan earlier this year, before the invasion of Ukraine, uh, Russia sent in about 6,000 troop or peacekeeping members, as they called it, to Kazakhstan to stabilize the civil unrest. And Kazakhstan's the second largest crypto mining country. So some people, including myself, were wondering whether that was a preemptive move by Russia to try and be better prepared against the sanctions it knew would be coming uh, and be imposed upon it after it invaded Ukraine. So I'm just curious if you could take us through first that viability of cryptocurrency, but also whether Russia sort of intendedly is trying to dominate the crypto mining scene, so to speak.
2: Great, uh, Pietro, for this uh, fascinating uh, and in many ways, a soul-searching question, I would have to say. And in many ways, the rise of cryptocurrencies—it it, it basically destabilized a lot of the economic thought that I have been I have been having, or I have studied in many ways for for my for all through my PhD training years. And uh, I simply cannot believe that you know people can just mobilize and uh, train, uh, and all buy in a belief. When I, when I think about cryptocurrencies, I, I would go back to the very fundamental definition of a currency itself. And I ask myself, what are the qualities that makes them as, as a currency? And the first quality I would think about and also why I tend not to want to take a long position in cryptos as, you know, either reserve currency or a viable currency for Global, for the, the futuristic global financial system is because in order for an exchange to take party, to take place, you need two parties to be willingly uh, accepted and at a relatively short period of time, almost happening simultaneously, meaning, right? So I ask myself, are we there yet? And the answer is I don't think so. In many ways, yes. You know, we can say, okay, so you know, uh, uh, whether it is Bitcoin, Ethereum, or, or Dogecoin, you know, it's hard for me to think out a, any think think about a uh, a scenario where international trade to counterpart would willingly take a crypto exchange the same way as the dollar bill. So that's, and in many ways, the reason why we have a face with international, international commercial actors have, and uh, central banks have faith in the dollar, in dollar denominated asset is because of the faith in the U.S. institution, U.S. Uh, economic and financial fundamentals, so, and, you know, the power of the Federal Reserve, and so on and so forth. From that perspective, you know, the very fundamental idea of a currency, you know the exchange part. I don't necessarily, uh, you know, see the the, the viability of f- cryptos become the next reserve currency or the next dominant currency in global financial system, or for or for that matter, uh, invoicing currency. But that does not. I, I would say that is different from a cryptocurrency as an asset class. Because when you are thinking about asset class, you do not necessarily use asset for trading, right? And, uh, you know, we, I, I tend to think about this like a fine art market because fine art, when you are thinking about fine art, yes, they are investable. They are asset. They, they have monetary values. You, yes, you can also trade them, but you know, you don't necessarily use them as the means of exchange, right? So, uh that that's how i would make my analogy in terms of thinking about the crypto market and their whole fitness in the global financial system and then goes back to your 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 question about you know to what where, where does russia see itself well i would have to say you are your you have a very distinctive uh, sharp ob- observation uh when you are asking that question and uh, russian central very you know very capable central bank governor she had Said a couple of years ago, saying that cur- digital currencies and cryptocurrencies are the future of Russians' financial system. So, and uh, Russia, I believe it's, it's around 2020-ish. Uh, I could be wrong, but I, I'm confident it's around 2020 or even earlier. Uh, Russia Central Bank published their. Uh, digital currency white paper. And in that paper, they sort of laid out the digital ruble and so on and so forth. So the whole idea is that if you look into it, the technique from the technical perspective is different from the digital yuan uh, because the digital yuan still has its own or the Chinese version of digital currency, right? The, the digital renminbi digital renminbi does not allow free conversion or, uh, you know, maintain the, 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 the conver- maintain capital controls so on and so forth. But the Russians, uh, Russian digital version of cent- uh, central bank digital currency is different because they want it to be based upon blockchain. And on top of that, the allow it from a future perspective. They allow it to be freely exchangeable with other currencies. And they even allow non-banking financial institutions to participate in that framework. So basically that means the Russian digital ruble, once it's launched, it can be freely participate. It can be freely conversion, converting into other currencies and through non-banking means, meaning, well, yes, if I'm, if the Russian banks are sanctioned by SWIFT, are, are kicked out of SWIFT, well, you probably can have insurance companies and other types of financial institutions help Russia to have liquidity access to global market, if that makes sense. So in many ways, you know, from your perspective, uh, Pietro, yes, I would say Russia does see itself as a very important player in the uh, crypto market going forward.
0: Well, I appreciate you you, you being so complimentary. I, I myself was quite proud of my ability to foresee or forecast what more people I think have come around to believe, which is this idea of Russia is being really preemptively opportunistic in this uh, focus of Kazakhstan because of the um, unprecedented amount of control it would have over the crypto mining space. I think the United States is still far out in the head. Just to tag onto that, actually, you made my mind wander towards the, the BRICS. There was discussion in the past couple of years about a BRICS sort of cryptocurrency and the, and the alternative sort of uh, usage of a financial model. Could you take us through a little bit more about that uh, specifically? Because those sort of India, China, r- Russia are still sizable economies. Brazil, absolutely, the hegemonic power of um, Latin America. I'd be curious to hear your take on the BRICS, particularly.
2: I mean, uh, within the BRICS, it's interesting that all, all these BRICS countries, and in particular the major ones, right? Uh, China, Russia, and uh, India—the the, the three countries—they have all uh, banned private cryptocurrency mining. But all the all their central banks have shown interest in developing their own central bank digital currencies. Whether it is going to be crypto based or not, that's a different type of discussion. But the interest would be very different. You know, from Russia's perspective, their development of digital cryptocurrency is to have an alternative means to have access to international liquidity. And from China's perspective, the, again, the development of a digital currency comes from, I would understand that from both domestic politics and China's role in international finance. I, I would understand that from two two perspectives. From the domestic perspective, you know, in many ways, China has been going cashless for like a long time ago. China basically, you know, the Chinese banking system or the Chinese transaction mechanism basically leap forwarded the, gener- the generation of a credit card and uh, moved directly into the cashless or WeChat Pay or uh, Alipay type of payment system, which is, you know, it speaks a lot to China's lack of financial infrastructure, but, you know, leap forward because of a lot of these innovative domestic fintech companies such as powered by, you know, Alipay and finance. So the rise of all these financial, all these non-banking financial platforms, and once they they accumulated a tremendous amount of money and they started to incentivize Chinese consumers and the Chinese savers to deposit money into their, into their, basically a retail account. And they say, like, and finance say, Hey, you know, I'm going to give you interest. I'm going to give you, uh, you know, and the interest is going to be higher than, than what you get from your bank. Basically, you are see, you started to see all these fintech powered platform becomes a Shadow banking, and uh, from the Chinese, uh, you know, the the Chinese government perspective, uh, th- there are two threats. One is. Uh, you know, financial stability threat and uh, all that associated with shadow banking, so on and so forth. You know, people already know about that. And then on the other hand, that is a direct challenge to the political economic power of the government as well, because for a long period of time since the establishment of the PRC, the power to allocate credit and the power to decide who get how much loan at what uh, percentage, in many ways, is yes, it is a negotiation between market and state, but to a Very large extent, the power essentially reside with the government. So once you started to have these competitors, it is also a threat to the political economic power, right? So I would understand China's, the the fintech, the China's development of central bank digital currency comes from the replacement of the of the non state actors. I would even. Put more weight on this domestic factor than the other idea of, you know, China tries to dominate global financial systems and, and, and that, that kind of a discussion. Because even if you just ask any Chinese, uh, bank, China, ask any, any Chinese, fina- whether it is financial practitioners, uh, central bank, central bankers, or even people in the ministry of finance, they don't believe that China's, China or the renminbi is going to overtake the dollar anytime soon. And they do not necessarily want that the same way as in the very, you know, before before the dollar became the reserve, the the hegemonic currency, United States didn't want or U.S. policymakers didn't have the intention or they, they were reluctant to have the U.S. become the U.S. dollar become the hegemonic currency because hegemonic currency comes with cost. The same discussion can be be applied to India to a certain extent in in the way that, you know, India does not want to have private uh, mining of digital currency, cryptocurrency, but central bank incentivize the digital, the bank of India incentivize central bank digital currency specifically because given that the rest of the world is looking into it, we wanted to be part of this as the club.
0: Absolutely, uh, tremendous! I, I always like to throw in a bit of a curveball question throughout the discussion, and you uh, you navigated it tremendously. So, no, thank you for taking us through that. I, I think that the the bricks are an interesting concept, but have been a little bit overutilized uh, in recent years. Sort of, they've in many ways only two of them have really come through to be what academics and analysts thought they would be when the term first appeared in the early 2000s. And that's China and India. Russia has, well, Russia has its Russian thing. And India, um, Brazil rather, has been, well, fallen by the wayside in many ways. And then South Africa, unfortunately, has dropped off. So the BRICS as a, as a concept is very interesting. And we'll be actually having a guest on Indian specifically from SICE later on uh, in May so very much looking forward to that. He's currently in India as we record this. But going a little bit broader now, so I want to I want to take a more of a historical lens uh, now and, and look at the Chinese and Russian relationship, which is very complicated. For much of the 20th century, the Soviet Union was the senior partner with China, very much the junior. Um, Mao even gave speeches, I think, titled Stalin is our commander. It seems that economic relationship is now being reversed or essentially has been reversed with the acceleration of Ukraine's uh, war cementing that, so to speak. But I can't imagine Russia is very happy about that. How do you foresee that relationship forging ahead? And are there tensions that we should be on the lookout for? Uh, uh,
2: You know, the, 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 going forward question are, uh, questions are, are always difficult because if, if I'm thinking of, thinking of this question as economist, I realize, well, I will never get this right. (laughs) But uh, if I think about it more from the perspective of, you know, where do we see the broader trend moving forward? I would say probably we are, probably we are, we are in an era where if we think about, you know, Russia-China relationship as a partner, you know, the partnership as, you know, who is dependent or, or, you know, in, from the perspective of interdependency, who is more dependent upon whom? Uh, I, I think given the, the current circumstances, in particular, Russia's being Essentially, with all these sanctions, you know, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia's engagement or Russia's trying to be or the West trying to socialize Russia into the global system. Basically, that's an end. So going forward, I would imagine probably in this Russia-China dynamic, Russia probably is going to be more dependent on China uh, along so many different ways, financially, economically, from energy perspective, along these spectrums. Then on the other hand, does China need Russia less? I don't necessarily think so, because on the one hand, from Beijing's calculation, Beijing never wanted to be the number one enemy of um, the United States. Right now, we are seeing, you know, U.S. and China describing each other as strategic competitors and, uh, you know, some nationalistic Argument would even consider China as a a, in China would even frame the United States as as you know as as the you know the 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 U.S. imperialist all over again. So, uh, I, I would say. China does not want, having, being the number one enemy of the United States is not the comfortable position that China or the CCP want to be. So China probably want Russia to, to, to be there as sort of a buffer zone in, so that, you know, China doesn't have to take the full on. Um but unfortunately China's economic size and uh China's global rich is simply too big now. And uh it's just the, the size of a Chinese economy is, is, is much bigger than Russia, right? So uh, inevitably, this makes the Chinese policymakers much more nervous. So going forward, again, I would say from bilateral relationship, China doesn't want Russia to be, to be uh, significantly weakened because that is not going to be in China's re- uh, interest at all. And then on the other hand, Russia probably is going to be more dependent on China because its relationship with the West is, you know, severely damaged because of this invasion of Ukraine. And then this China Russia nexus has their own dynamic within the non Western non Western partners partnerships or institutions, whether it is the Shanghai. Corporation organization or the BRICS or the Russian led Central Asia corporation uh, varieties there. In Central Asia, there are varieties of multilateral institutions, right? So I would see this kind of paradigm emerging. People, if this comes down to the question of um, whether China and Russia is going to significantly reshape or revise the existing global system, I would say, we will see the existing global system continue to continue to, to evolve, and probably to what extent. The bigger question, from my perspective, is: Are we going to see China and Russia becoming more inward-looking, meaning they are going to be trying, they are going to use external crisis to? F- force a domestic enclosure or to clo- implement a new round of closing door policy. And if that is the case, I would see it ve- being very dangerous. I, I don't believe I'm the only person saying this because you know right around the time of Tiananmen happened, uh, President Bush at that time, he talked to American people, policymakers and say that, well, we don't want this to be a moment to see China close door. And uh, try to separate itself to the rest of the system, and I think this is, if this is another moment where we see uh, we don't want Russia and China to close door to the global system, I think probably it's um, it's, it's the right uh, analogy from my perspective.
1: Zoe, your comment brings to mind uh, President Nixon's article in Foreign Affairs in 1969 where he says, you know, it is not in our national interest to allow 700 million people, by which he meant Chinese people, or I think over a billion people, to live in angry isolation, cherish its fantasies, nurtures hatreds, and threatens its neighbors.
0: Yes, I think that's, um, and despite you saying about not wanting to forecast too much, I do remember um, the political risk in Asia class that I, I was taking in uh, size. I, I enjoy trying to make forecasts, and maybe that's just me being a weirdo, enjoying political risk. Staying in that sort of Russo chinese relationship in the broader uh, Asian area. Uh, I wanna bring in more recent events from just the historical. I mean, I'm firmly of the opposition that Russia will become a vassal state to China. There are people that say that, and I think that's quite absurd, frankly. Um, And I think if the West was more intelligent, they would have intelligent and perhaps tactful in bringing uh, Russia on side, maybe not as a complete ally, but at least a, a colleague, so to speak. The implications of Russia's invasion has resulted in geopolitical tensions and instabilities across the globe, and somewhere that I don't think we expected it to happen was between Japan and Russia, because the the two sides have been trying to facilitate peace talks over the Kuril uh, Islands and the Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea theater. Now, obviously, the Russians still have quite a, some Russians have a position over Japan given the uh, the war of 1904. It's still, if you read Russian history, it still has a bit of an imprint on the minds that Russia lost to Japan in that war. Um, but with the events in Ukraine, Japan followed along with the West in imposing their own set of sanctions. And that resulted in the Russians calling a halt to the most recent round and efforts of peace talks, which have basically, I think, arguably started since 1951, uh, with uh, the Prime Minister Kishida even stating that they're, quote, a territory in which Japan has sovereignty. Uh, and so a clear departure from uh, his predecessor uh, and his approach. So could you talk us through some of those changes and what you consider this to mean for the, the sub-region of the Asian Pacific, theatre, including China's potential stance? in that whole relationship. Yeah,
2: I mean, that is uh, right. You know, territorial dispute from, you know, I grew up in China and uh, uh, territorial dispute has always been the part that I find. I I find things that I learned when I was uh, when growing up in China, some of that stayed with me, did not change. But some of that, I started to realize, well, there is a different version of the story once I came over to study here in America. And, you know, I realized, oh, a lot of things are are, you know, there are different narratives. And here, in the, the, the territorial dispute in between China and, uh, sorry, in between Japan and Russia, it fits in that kind of narrative because, you know, if you talk to the Japanese, you talk to the Russians, they have different, uh, descriptions. For a period, and this territorial dispute, there, it's a cyclical in many ways during Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and, uh, you and, uh, you remember a couple of years ago, Japan and, uh, in particular be- between Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and, uh, um, uh, President Putin, there was this, uh, Dog diplomacy, you know they would the exchange pets that was the kind of like you know people consider that as very cute moment in in international diplomacy right so recently uh, I believe it's uh, it's uh, li- literally about two or three days ago, Japan basically switched policy over the territorial dispute with 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 Moscow. After Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you know, in, it, Japan published this, um, 2022, right? 2022 diplomatic blue book. So in that blue book, it, it basically stated that, um, the four Northern Islands, they are illegally occupied by Russia. So that is very strong language compared with Japan's previously trying to tone it down. And knowing this, Japan imported almost 100% of its energy from outside. And uh, Japan, a lot of Japanese companies are having major financial investment in Russia's Far East, the Yamaha project, right? So, in many ways, in Japan, is Japan Russia's political uh, relationship should not have been moving towards this position. In many ways, you know, yes, this could be a position we can think about this from the perspective of um, Japan's opportunism in the sense that, well, there is, uh, you know, Russia is probably over-rich, over-occupied, and uh, this might be an opportunity for Japan to reclaim. In particular, with the new government, you probably, this is a new uh, opportunity to reclaim some disputed territories. But I, I don't want to think, think about politicians from that perspective because you know Japan's politicians are—they have their own domestic domestic constituencies—and and I would rather think about this from the perspective of U.S.-Japan relations. So, in ever since the, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we we observe not just European Union countries are you know in close alliance with the United States, Japan has been closely following the United States a position as well. And the Japanese uh, we not only see major Japanese companies quit Russian uh, market. We also see Japan uh, issued similar type of sanctions and uh, freeze their Russians access to uh, their their asset Russians access a- Russia's access to their assets in Japan, and so on and so forth. And more, moreover, there is also this relationship in between Japan and uh, China. You know, the escalation of uh, of tensions in between these two countries also. Plays into their calculation. So in many ways, this probably uh, it it speaks to the broader, broader strengthening of U.S.-Japan security alliance, and uh, Japan wanted to maintain a stronger relationship with the United States. Uh, So I guess it probably exactly as you described, Russia's invasion of Ukraine indeed sent out a um, quite. Uh, large shockwaves throughout the globe for those relatively peace or dormant uh, dormant geopolitical tensions such as the Four Island now become an issue.
0: Indeed, I think that your your history that you took in Shandong uh, Normal University, if that I am right in 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 saying, is um is has given you an amazing grasp on the history of the region. And um, we've also seen in recent times the development of nuclear-capable submarines in um, South Korea. They have the ability to launch a specific classification of missiles now. That was something that happened recently last year. But also North Korea has decided to launch, I think, more missiles in the past six weeks than they have done in the past five years or so. So the East China Sea is very much a, a rumbling area. And it's, it's a problem because the, it's an area that the Americans, the Russians and China actually have a degree of, should we say, overlap of agreement very tentatively, but they do have a bit of a uh, an overlap over how to sort of engage North Korea. So with the Ukrainian developments there and the uh, reaffirming of the Russian-Chinese strategical partnership and growing depth of relations, I think that's going to have an interesting impact on North Korea. But I want to hit the elephant in the room, which is, I'm sure we've heard lots of speculation about how China is watching the Russian invasion of Ukraine very carefully, for cues on how the rest of the world might react uh, to its own potential actions against Taiwan, of all. So, if you were sitting in President Xi's seat right now, what conclusions would you be drawing about what Russia has done in Taiwan and Ukraine, and what can it do vis-à-vis Taiwan?
2: Ah, that is, uh, that is more than above my. Hey great. <laughs> but also you know i'm not an expert on political psychology and i don't um, I, I like to think of myself you know not as not, not 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 being able to read through president Xi. i don't have a crisp crystal ball of pre- president Xi's mind but you know just okay <laughs> so
0: you can you can pretend not to be president <laughs> g but i'm still keen to hear your what you think right, right. russia uh, the invasion may have for chinese uh,
2: Right, right. Yes, you know, this is a fundamental question. And, you know, from ma- many people are keen, not just here in, in the United States or in the West, but but people in, in China are also watching this closely. They watch this not because they are thinking about I don't believe the. I don't buy into a lot of these conspiratory theory. In many ways, conspirators, cons, conspiratory, in the sense that, well, you know, this putting the invasion of Ukraine is China's foreplay to invade Taiwan. I I don't believe in that kind of, you know, analogy. But uh, I do think that Russia's facilitate over the years Russia's facilitation of all these separatist uh, separatist movement in former soviet states it does contradict one of the fundamental tenets of Chinese foreign policy, which is national uh sovereignty and the inviolability of national sovereignty. And you know, like on Beijing's foreign policy tenant, one of the most important tenants is uh sovereignty and mutual respect and non-interference, right? So you know, with regard to Taiwan, the pers- the idea of one china principle is a cornerstone. And uh I think right from this perspective, uh Russia's Russia's invasion of Ukraine basically. Is that the idea is to carve further into Ukraine's territory. And this approach, probably if I were in Beijing watching this, I would be concerned that probably Taiwan could be stripped by external forces. You see the analogy here? The, the concern used to be, if we think about Taiwan, the danger of the Beijing's, how Beijing think about, uh, you know, Taiwan separatism or Taiwan independence, there are two major threats. One is, uh, Taiwan independent movement or independent uh, separatism inside Taiwan coming from Taiwan and from Beijing's perspective that is domestic politics that is the internal affairs and you know if you think about if you look at how Taiwan affairs is being managed it's not by foreign ministry it's by Taiwan Affairs office it's an internal affair not international relations right but now looking at the Russia's invasion of Ukraine how Russia is trying to carve carve into Ukraine territories Beijing is concerned that external or in- international forces might, might interfere into Taiwan uh, issue and uh, strip Taiwan away from China. And I think, you know, I tend to read Chinese government official speech very carefully. Don't over, or don't, don't just, don't, don't always buy into what they, they say. But what Chinese Prime Minister Li Keqiang said during the, um, uh, two sessions this, this, this March, I I think he sent a clear signal that might shows Beijing's calculation, which is he emphasized Beijing's uh, opposition to the separatism movement in Taiwan, you know, the Taiwan independence, but he also emphasized the opposition of foreign interference. Therefore, probably the, uh, if we think about Beijing's calculation, they probably are more concerned right now with regard to Taiwan, more concerned about foreign interference and to what extent foreigners might want it to escalate Taiwan into a international relations issue. And that is not what Beijing wanted. And in many ways, Beijing does not want to make any precedent that might be applied to the case of Taiwan. So, you know, when Chinese uh, diplomat, Wang Yi and all the others say, you know, China is not a part of this Ukraine crisis. I think they have a, the, the, the subtitle, the subline I read there is, well, we we are not directly invo- involved and we are not indirectly involved and we don't want this to have any implication for Taiwan.
1: So Zoe, if I may add a very quick, I guess what Piotr would call a cheeky question to that is... You know, we heard you loud and clear that Russia's actions in Ukraine violate one of the current Chinese government's core principles that, you know, national sovereignty is inviolable, especially and cannot be, you know, uh, interfered with from the outside. But I do wonder if Chinese policymakers are looking at the situation and taking away the opposite message, which is, hey, you know, Russia just went ahead and, you know, said loudly, explicitly, implicitly, so on and so forth. Our intervention in Ukraine is justified because, and Vladimir Putin himself said this, Ukraine's not really a country. It's, it's actually people who don't realize that they're Russians, and if they want to separate from Russia, that can't be permitted. We have historical claims, we have ethnic claims, we have religious claims, we have cultural claims, and that is a basis for armed intervention, potential annexation, certainly extending a sphere of influence. Um, so I, I guess my very cheeky question is, Could there be policymakers in Beijing who are taking that interpretation instead and seeing this as a justification?
2: That is an excellent question, Tao. And I would imagine, I mean, on this issue... I ha- I haven't get uh, I was I haven't been lucky to get any discussions from my my, my friends. You know, I try to talk with my friends over WeChat on this issue, and uh, nobody want to talk to me on this. <laughs> so I can only uh, make uh, s- relatively uh, speculative. Specul- I can only you know like speculate into what has been going on over there, right? So um, the idea right now, if if we just follow the model of you know who is making China's Taiwan policy on the one hand you have all these uh, policymakers uh, including diplomat and then you also have the PLA who you know in many ways are hawkish and, and, and all that. But I would if I were the PLA uh, generals or if I were in uh, the, the PLA situation room and uh, one takeaway that I have from Russia's invasion of Ukraine is that well I may not necessarily have a lot of confidence in my own army. Because President Putin, in many ways, he th- he probably realized, well, he overestimated the capacity of his troops and his equipment. You know, we see all these, uh, you know, uh, falling apart, Russian tanks and all that. And then on the other hand, I, I think this is the direct lesson for the PLA, you know, to what extent they are combat ready. And then on the other hand, the problem with the PLA is they never really had a real combat experience. So from that perspective, I think that is a deter, deterrence factor. And then on the other hand, I would also... Be thinking twice if I wanted, even if the PLA wanted to say, "Hey guys, let's do it." The other part I wanted to, I I would say, probably would put a check or a very important check on that is the sanctions. Right now, it's not just because Chinese financial institutions have a pretty good track record of sanction compliance; it's also Because China is way much more reliant upon the global trading system, the global financial system than Russia. In cases when China, if we are imagining, you know, if we are imagining the United States were to impose a similar type of sanctions on China, God forbid that for that from happening, because that is going to be very, very costly for us here as well. Right. But if that were to happen, China is going to be suffering a lot. As well, and in many ways, you know, right now, you know, if we just think about to what extent China is dependent upon global trading system, indeed, I I haven't checked the numbers this this uh, for this month yet, but um, it's way much bigger than Russia. And not Russia only has one one sector that is very exposed to global market, which which is uh, oil and gas, nothing else, right, (laughs) basically. But China, if you just look at what what are the Chinese, basically, the entire Chinese economic mix is very reliant upon. On the global trading system, and China is a very important part of the global supply chain. So, I would think the deterrence, the other uh, deterrence factor, would come from the sanctions.
1: Zoe, thank you for that. And by the way, I did admit upfront that it was going to be a cheeky question. Uh, Piotr, I believe you now have some audience questions coming in. We do. This is the
0: part of the podcast which is um, very, very social and interactive. So, what we're going to do is jump around some of the live interactive audience that we have listening in as part of that. And if you want to find out how you can do that, then listen in and stay tuned to the end of the podcast. But my first question I would really like to go to is Lisa, who I think has a very interesting Thank
2: you, Peter. Um, Thank you, Dr. Zoe. It's an honour. Thank you for making time on your Saturday to be with us. My question is, um, we're an increasingly uh, divided America, as you know, and But Americans seem to be or appear to be finding common ground in one area, and that is opposition to China. So what happens to, piggybacking on your, your statement before, which was so eloquent, what happens to the Chinese middle class if the U.S. indeed turns its back on China? yeah Lisa thank you very much for um for this fascinating question i i really I, I really appreciate that you know you bring the people the face of people and put a human touch uh, on this big power competition and I try to that I try to do that in my own research as well I think you know ya in my earlier and I appreciate you asking this question because you know you give me an opportunity to bring in the people the human aspect to this great power competition. And I'll just use myself as as an example because, you know, my parents are middle class and because they they are hard workers, I get an opportunity to come over to America, study here and and work here and get get to know um, great friends, diverse culture, right? The problem that I see very, very, the the most, the cost, apart from all these financial costs, you know, going to be very costly and very painful. Apart from that, what I I see the most danger Going forward, if the United States turn it turn it back again, uh, you know, on China, is going to be the lack of people-to-people exchange. And I believe, genuinely, in people-to-people exchange, uh, because only when people can see eye to eye to each other, and only when people can genuinely talk to each other, even if you just fight, as long as you are you are communicating you can see the relationship can continue. But if, uh, you know, all the communication channels are shutting down, or there is no Chinese student coming over to America, or, you know, Chinese student take pride in not coming over to America, that is going to be very dangerous. And is it's not going to be, a, it's not just a a toll on the talent or, you know, technology exchange. It's just, a toll on human to human exchange and it's a toll on how better people can understand each other. And I totally get you. Yes, the most, the easiest thing that, you know, we can reach a bipartisan agreement on is to let's fight China right now. This is the political, the, the unfortunate political scenario we are in right now. But, it, but, but in many ways, I try to be optimistic when thinking about these two relationships. Because we, I, I tend to think US and China are so intertwined. I want to make this analogy, and I hope people would agree with me as well, which is this is like a marriage that is entering into a problematic period, whether it is seven years each or 50 years each, right? So... When people, when two, when a couple are fighting, you sometimes, you know, sometimes this couple would tend to think the each other from the worst possible intention. And uh, I hope that this is where we are now. And as long as um, people keep talking to each other, I I hope we can find a solution out of this uh, downturn.
0: Thank you for that great question, Lisa. Um, always terrific to hear are those um, sort of people orientated questions as well.
3: Hi, Zoe. Uh, thanks for being with us. I got I had the pleasure of reading your paper, Can um, Bricks De-Dollarize the Global Financial System? And it was very sound and unbiased uh, the way I read it, very easy to understand. You included that rising powers seek to increase their status and influence as agenda setters. And you also rightfully acknowledge the financial exchange founded on market confidence and alignment for a sustainable system to function. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what U.S. has to give up or what U.S. would give up if it were to buy into the idea of a, of using blockchain as a fair international ledger to store some unit of value and to act as the medium of exchange. This question is based on the assumption that a de-dollarized currency is identified or some unit of value. And to simplify it even further, in other words, I'm trying to test the idea of capturing a country's wealth, and creating visibility towards the activities uh, where records are unchanged and are visible to all nations. Jaya, uh, thank you very much for your uh, for your
2: question and uh, your your attention to, to, to my research. I would say, well, the, the question, uh, if I understand your question correctly, is about what the United States would have to give if we were to use a decentralized currency, whether it is crypto or any, any other uh, sort of uh, Currency and uh, to to what to what extent that can be a measurement of national wealth?
3: Yeah. So with the first part, I'll just clarify to say it's uh what does the U.S. have to give up? Well, that is a that is a tricky question and
2: it's tough because it's, it, when we think about countries, we we tend to think think of them as as we tend to anthropomorphize. Pardon. Of, Pardon. Of, Pardon. Of, Just bear with me, you know, use some technical terms. It's just that, you know, we tend to anthropomorphize, meaning we tend to think the United States as if it's a person. And we, 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 we think about what the United States has, has to give up. And in many ways, I think if we stay with your premise, if we already had this decentralized currency and all that, what does, what did the United States have to, what does the United States have to give, right? Give up, right? I personally think probably this might be a, uh internal d deb- the same way as when the dollar became the dominant currency. It was not the, uh, you know, it was not Congress, it was not uh, the uh, Treasury Department or the State Department. It was a bunch of, uh, you know, Wall Street financiers led by uh, the led by a uh, city executive, bank executive, right? So you have a very entrenched international banking community. They realized, well, if we can have our own currency as the means of transaction, that is going to make our job way much easier. And we can just charge other people who didn't have our money. We can just charge them fees and we can make a hell of a lot of money, right? So in many ways, if we think about what the United States might give up, uh, in uh, in a in a futuristic world i, I personally think that you we are, we are we are not necessarily seeing that we are giving up but we are trying to internalize uh, or uh to bring these new emerging fintech vehicles Bring them or bring this anti-establishment in many ways, bring them into the establishment. If we think, take Bitcoin, for example, right? Bitcoin had some, I tend to think Bitcoin might have some identity crisis. They used to think that they are, they, they, they didn't have, they, they are decentralized and then somehow they want, they, they wanted to have become, you know, the next gold and the storage of value. And then they wanted to become inflation hedge. And then it's it, it come, it seems that they are constantly having an identity crisis trying to justify their existence where from my perspective if you are the dominant currency it's a fact you don't have to justify your existence um, then at the same time the, a lot of this c- cryptocurrency group try to become the establishment because using using again using Bitcoin as an example if they become if they wanted to, uh make the analogy as VR gold, then the natural and you know you wanted to de- de- uh you know facilitate smart contract the develop the futures market and so on and so forth then we are talking about you suddenly become a type of uh, a financial asset which they are and uh, if once you become a financial asset and if you wanted to consider yourself as a type of commodities. I think there is a readily available regulatory agency here in the United States that can regulate you, which is the CFTC, right? So in many ways we are seeing this institution these um, anti establishment are trying to become part of the establishment and the establishment in many ways try to bring them in because GP uh, you know you, you see GP Morgan, a lot of these banks they started to build their own system, their own crypto based system as well. So I I don't necessarily think the United States might might necessarily give up anything. I believe in the market solution probably the market might find out a way to probably either it is you know a lot of these emerging anti-establishment become simply become part of the establishment or the uh, financial institutions themselves simply come up with an align, come up with the solution the same way as we created the Fed when the Fed did not exist.
0: Thank you Jai. and uh, yeah always got a great question so appreciate that. All right. Next up, I want to go to a, a good old uh, geopolitical risk nerd like myself, um, Mr. Aaron Berger. The floor is yours.
4: Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, always a, a really great conversation there. I was curious about your thoughts here. So looking ahead, I've been talking about how it seems like after the war drags on, uh, Russia continues to lose uh, diplomatic and economic power. At, at uh, quite, um, I think that we can see the uh, exit of Russia from kind of uh, uh, any kind of great power status and sort of, you know moving into a stage uh in sort of the great game where uh we're gonna have basically, you know, China versus the US slash the West. My my question to you. So um it's looking like the future for Russia is going to be basically vassalization to China there. Curious about uh, uh your thoughts. One, uh what kind of advantages this would bring uh, to China, like such as with the Belt and Road Initiative or something like that. And then two, how do you think this will affect uh, what we might be seeing as uh, um balkanization of trade or tech uh, between China uh, and the West?
2: Yeah, Aaron, that's a fantastic question. Uh, you know, I, I ask myself this exactly the same question you just asked me uh, several, t- several times since the war began uh, or rather starting from, I think it was 2019 when China and Russia, uh, you know, elevated their relationship to the uh, strategic partnership or whether uh, blah, 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 like a very mouthful, basically the highest level of bilateral relations in China's foreign relations uh, you know, hierarchy. And they put that as in a new era. I asked myself, what is this new era? And then, you know, there was this unlimited partnership. So basically, I was asking myself this question, like, you know, why we need a friend like Russia, you know, in many ways. I tend to believe that, you know, we are judged by our own friends in socialization. So, you know, like why we need a friend, why need, why we, why China wouldn't need a friend like Russia and what is the benefit, right? In many ways, from our perspective in the West, we tend to think, well, you know, Russia has been doing a lot of these things, damages, and probably China, in many ways, it is a collateral damage. And I tend to agree China in this situation, it is a collateral damage, but probably from Beijing's calculation, things might be a little bit different and they may not consider Russia as a pure or a net, net liability. Because on the one hand, at least in the near term, China still requires a lot of uh, energy, imported energy in particular. And right now, China replaced the United States, become the largest oil importer. And, uh, China, and, uh, China, that, that basically means when oil price goes up or goes down, the China, it it is going to be a, it is going to create a, a lot of difficulty for China to manage its, um, uh, its trade balance because of energy prices. And then on the other hand, there is also, uh, on on the other hand, it's difficult for uh, China to manage its relationship with other Major oil and gas exporting countries as well. So you know, Russia being one of the largest oil and gas exporting countries in the world, it has some benefit, at least, to satisfy China's energy ernst. uh We also see, you know, the pipelines in between China and Russia. You know, the power of Siberia. The the uh, the, the 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 first part of it completed and started running. I believe 2019 and uh, ish and uh, then this year they also right during the olympic they said well they are going to uh they the, the second part is is going to be ready to run and they also signed a contracts to you settle those all uh those energy transactions using uh local currencies so Energy trade could also be a testing ground for China and Russia to push the use of, the use of local currency in international trade invoicing. And that in many ways could be beneficial for China as well because uh, China has been, uh, China has established its renminbi oil futures uh, in Shanghai, which has already be emerged into the third largest oil futures market that is not you know do, do, dollar denominated right it's larger than the Singapore's larger, larger than Tokyo's larger than the um, in terms of trading volume and larger than Dubai's so from that perspective uh you know it's it, it is good to boost it is facilitating China's the renminbi's pricing power in global commodities market and uh, if we think about you know how the United how how the United States US dollar becomes the the, the hegemonic currency the, um, you know, the, the cement of that probably comes from the use of dollar in global oil trade. So there is that angle. And then on, on top of that, I, I can also think of uh, food security in particular, uh, because it used to, China used to import a lot of grains, in particular wheat and, uh, I think it's barley. Yes, I think it's barley, wheat, wheat and barley from the European Union, from Australia, from Canada, and uh, and the United States. But because of re- relationship deterioration with all these countries, China had to find alternatives. And uh, in the past few years. China removed a lot of import, food, grain, importing bans from Russia. And uh, in February, early February before Olympic, I think China removed a ban of importing Russia's wheat. So that is another. That is another, you know, benefit that I can think of. So food and energy; those are the two things that I can think about. And then from the tech, the balkanization of the tech. I think you are you are touching upon the core core issue that I've been thinking about. You know, because you know, if we think about the technology market complementarity, in many ways, China is a consumer of um, uh, U.S. tech or high tech industry in the West. But China could be a provider. In other words, China can profit from exporting its uh, less sophisticated but cheaper uh, gears to developing countries, uh, such as Russia. And you see this taking place in the past few years already. Like Xiaomi, those are you know those those are good enough phones uh, that are not necessary. You know, cannot compete with the United States U.S. phones, whether it is uh, you know whether whether it's Apple or. Other type or Google or other types but but, but you know we they, they can Russia is one of the largest uh market for a lot of these relatively mid-tier mid-market Chinese tech mark te- tech years but in many ways from technology from patent perspective China has some domestic indigenous de- indigenous capacity but it still it is a consumer of Western technology which means. It pays. Uh, China had to pay. But China can, Chinese companies probably can make money from the, from, from exporting its own gears to the, the the other part of the world, if you will. So I would say from market perspective, yes, probably the balkanization, the, the balkanization in many ways already happened, is already happening. But, um, in terms of where we see a lot of these, would we observe the fragmentation of the supply chains fundamentally are China going to try to weaponize its, you know, dom- dom- uh, its monopoly of uh, the refining capacity of all these rare earth minerals in case China is being weapon- the global system is being weaponized against China. I think that is probably a real danger.
0: Yeah. Thank you very much for that, Aaron. I think that the balkanization aspect is is quite intriguing. And I myself was touching upon the vassal point earlier, and uh, I don't think it is likely personally. I mean, I don't want it to be being Russian. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I think we're going to be drawing down in the final stages of the discussion. Uh, I'd love to go to, over to Jim, who I think has a very interesting question for us.
4: Yes. Uh, thank you, Dr. Zoe. This is Jim from uh, Florida. During my time in this room, I have learned that China has a lot of projects and and so my question for you is do you see those as ways to help raise the income for mainland China or do you see these as ways of strategic development in a different places in the world or possibly ways of getting footholds in a different places in the world and the second part of Peter doesn't mind is how do you think that this may affect the the economies in those places because China is bringing their own labor on their own, and how will this affect the global balance?
2: Yeah, thank you very much, Jim. And you know, uh, uh, Florida is where I want to retire going uh, eventually, so I envy you. You are in Florida, <laughs> so I um, think the first part of your question, with regard to the basically the the fundamental question is. Is Chinese firms and Chinese companies or, or, or the, you know, the, the whole idea of BRI and the whole idea of going out, is it really going out or is it Chinese companies being forced out from domestic perspective and uh, their local impact? In many ways, from my own research, I think really this whole idea of BRI is not necessarily about this whole a holistic idea or China has a grand strategy that uh, you know the cCP wanted to have its flag all over the world in every part of the continent i don't i, I don't see a holistic vision and i don't see a holistic very well planned long term agenda instead I see a lot of fragmented bureaucratic competitions and I see a lot of internal fighting of and And I do also, because of this lack of um, strategic vision, you also see lots of people trying to shape. The conversation trying to take advantage of, Oh, this is a great, great opportunity. And as long as I can brand my project as BRI, I can get cheap financing from the bank. So you see a lot and you even see retrofitting. This is this, the project was originally not a BRI, but then the, in order to get a f- f- further financing, they may, they make sure that this becomes a BRI, BRI project. So you see that happening as well. And the reason why I would say, a lot of this are, is not necessarily going out. Are, are actually Chinese companies are being forced out. It's simply because the, there are two, two, two part. One, the, since the global financial crisis, China's long-term partner and China's largest consumer market here in the United States and in European Union, their consumer, their, the consumer market shrank tremendously. So you had to find alternative. And then secondly, because of $4 trillion stimulus at home during the global financial crisis, it realized, you know, they create a lump, money couldn't solve all the problems. And in fact, there were lots of domestic issues. And you see local bad loans being building up and so on and so forth. And therefore, the domestic market is not necessarily, uh, you know, having a lot of space. So, what is the, where, where, where is the policy space that the government can use? There is this magic era, the so-called going out strategy. So, based upon this, because of this, literally this domestic overcapacity, means China had to find a market for a lot of this market that is not being used, not being purchased in Western market, not being consumed at home. You have to find alternative market. So this is the broader background of BRI. And uh, in this, so you see Minister of Commerce, Minister of Finance, Minister of uh, Foreign Affairs, they not they are not necessarily very well coordinated simply because these bureaucracies they man, they have their subdivisions and then they don't all, all these Chinese companies working overseas they don't necessarily uh, have on the one hand they don't always have good communication they don't always have uh, reporting back directly to their uh, directly to all these different ministries so the ministries don't always have a good a good picture of who is doing what and, uh, where? And then on the other hand, there is also the the, 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 flip side of that is risk control, meaning how these Chinese companies know which is a good place to invest and how do they do all this risk assessment? I'll give you one example, which is, you know, which, which is some of my research touched upon Chinese uh, fiber constructions in Mali. And the idea over, so there I ask them, like, who do, who do, who to, which Chinese government agency did you get your loan from? Uh, so, you know, uh, people are telling me, well, you know, it's similar as other Chinese investment in, in, in uh, Africa, you know, it comes from China's import and export bank. Then I ask, okay, so do the Chinese import and export bank do the project uh, impact analysis, environmental assessment, do, basically do any risk assessment? They say, well, they investigate our report. That's I asked them, so how do you do this report? Uh, we, we actually didn't know, but we know how, what, how we could cook the numbers so that we can get the loan. So there you go. You know, you see this being played out not only in Mali, but in other part of, uh, you know, Chinese project in, in, in Africa as well. So to what extent these are money making project? I honestly do not know because I don't have the numbers. And when you look at all these financial analysis from the uh, import export bank and uh, China, China, um, China development or CDB, they don't necessarily have all these detailed breakdowns of how much loan we take out and how much loan they were, the the, the repayment schedule. So the, the holistic picture of how much money China has actually made from all these overseas projects, I don't, I don't necessarily know. But, I do not buy into the debt trap argument either, simply because after talking to all these people who actually negotiated the deals, I realized, oh, actually it is Pretty possible that some of these companies may defrauded the banks. The other part of your question is with regard to you know the impact on local on the locals, right? I genuinely, again, I genuinely believe that there are certain projects that might be good in the sense that y- yes, we tend to think Asian companies in general they don't necessarily have good ESG standard. You know, we think about Europeans and in many ways uh, U.S. companies as well. They have higher ESG standard and they are more diverse and uh, environment inclusive and all. That. but i know at least two project two chinese projects, one in kenya one in uh nigeria they are actually focusing on empowering local women and i think that is a great thing because if you can bring in women to participate in the in the labor market and you can train the local girls you are essentially empowering more laborers in the region and uh, i tend to believe you know happy wife happy life so hopefully we will see more of those happening rather than bad numbers being cooked up
0: i was not expecting uh, to hear that expression come from you so happy wife happy life that's a, a very uh, interesting as we wrap up this episode of the global gambit Zoe, I'd love to uh, hear any takeaways you have, any final points you want to leave the audience with, and also where people can find you, where they can engage with your work. I know you have a paper, uh, a great piece coming out, um, I think next year or later this year on sovereign debt. Um, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that or anything else if you want to just share before we wrap this up. Uh,
2: yeah, thank you very much, Pietro. And uh, also thank you, Tan, uh, Tao, for, for inviting me. I, I enjoyed this conversation. Thank you all for giving. Thank you for all for tuning in. And this book is on uh, how China used its foreign exchange reserves to, to capitalize one of the well the largest collection of sovereign uh, wealth fund in the world and uh, in this book, I explain uh, who are these funds, how they are capitalized and what kind of a debt instrument they use and uh, how these funds have been used to support the Chinese Communist Party's various uh, geopolitical uh, priorities, both at home and, uh, and abroad. And this book is going to be published by Harvard University Press, uh, hopefully subten- uh, spring next year. So more to come. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Tremendous, tremendous. No, absolutely. And equally, thank you, Tao, for your time as always. Um, wonderful how to have your expertise and participation as well. So with that, I want to thank everybody very much for listening. We have a great couple of events coming up. The next episode, we'll be discussing the um, perspective of India uh, with a science faculty member uh, as well. And then the episode after that, we'll be hosting a fantastic uh, member of the Atlantic Council. To be discussing the importance of the Ukrainian-Russian war on the Iranian deal, but also just Iran starts in the Middle East and its relations with Russia as well. So lots coming up. Um, I've been your host, Piotr Cousin. Thank you very much for tuning in. Take care. You were listening to The Global Gambit. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe and leave us a review. We would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it. Doing so helps us to be discovered by new listeners who would really enjoy our content. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash theglobalgambit, where you can get additional perks and even be featured in upcoming episodes. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at the global gambit. Got any feedback or suggestions, such as potential guests? Get in touch at theglobalgambit at gmail.com. Lastly, don't be shy. Download the Clubhouse app, listen in in real time, and even participate with questions or comments to the guests and host, Piotta. But until next time, this is
1: The Global Gambit.